Um, so first of all, if you'll indulge me, I need to just tell you a little bit about me, my background, um, and that will hopefully set a context for what I'm talking about this morning. So if you do know me, you'll know that I'm pretty honest. So if you want to know how I am, you only have to ask me and I'll let you know. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything for anyone. Um, I was brought up in the 1980s, 90s evangelical church. So if any of you have that experience... They were very much, from my point of view, I would say they were defined as either or. So that's how I understood it. As an evangelical teenager, person in my 20s, you were either, well, I'll be controversial now, egalitarian or complementarian. So you either believed, yeah, no, yeah. I had, an, I had a conversation with my dad about this the other day, and then that's how we led to paradox. <laughs> Both and, anyway. So you were either egalitarian or complementarian. You were either Pentecostal or brethren. You were either inside the blessing or you were outside of the blessing. You either had a vision or you didn't have a vision. And that's fine. I don't criticize it. I don't fully understand it. But it caused huge difficulty for me because I would say growing up, I was in an environment of suffering and trouble. So, you know, my teens weren't easy. The, the social environment that I lived in wasn't easy. Um, so I knew suffering, and I also knew the provision and saw the promises of God played out. And there were times when both of those things existed at the same time, and one didn't cancel out the other. So the suffering didn't disappear, and the promises of God didn't disappear. They both coexisted. So I lived in a faith myself of both and all the time. And if I could define my faith, it would be defined by what I would call the wrangle. So I've come to realize that actually there's a difference between the certainty of God and his promises and comprehensive certainty. So when I try to solve God, which I've really tried to do, you know, I've spent lots of years trying to solve him and work him out, you know, and I, what I do is I bend him into this structure that I've created and that structure only goes as far as I understand. So it only goes as far as my social experience. And this is reflected in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, it says, we, for now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Isaiah, you know, God actually says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Romans says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unfathomable are his ways. So when I talk about living in the both and, I'm talking about I live in paradox. That's how my faith works, in paradox. Um, and I'm not asking you, when I talk about paradox, I'm not asking you to, might not like this name, but I, I'm not asking you to put your brain in a bowl. So I'm not asking you to say, just don't worry, it's fine, it's paradox, don't worry, just get over it, it's fine. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm actually asking you to engage in the complexity of God and find awe and wonder and more. The more you search, the more you question, the more you engage with the both andness, the greater he becomes, the more complex he becomes and your faith becomes. 
And I found that the acceptance of godly paradox and uh, what a writer called Russ Ramsey calls abiding complexity to be the greatest unearthing and extension of my faith and testament to the character of God. So in the same way that the burning bush both and, it both was on fire and did not burn. And because it was both on, um, on fire and did not burn, Moses was drawn to the fire because of that complexity, because it didn't make sense. There was a, a both and this. And it created an encounter with God. And the both and this of God has both given me the greatest challenge and the greatest comfort. And so I hope that what I say also does that for you today. So let me talk about paradox both and. Um, and let me also say that paradox isn't a contradiction so contradiction is where two things logically self-refute. So if this thing exists, this thing can't exist. So if the water is hot, it can't also be cold. That's a contradiction. Paradox is both and. So, right, I'm going to give you my wiki knowledge now, okay? So there's the suspension bridge, right? I might have to, I might have to read this out, okay? So you've got two strong piers that are driven down into the rock. Okay, two strong piers. You've got anchors on both sides, right? All of the compression weight is transferred to the two piers, driven down into the foundations and pulled out at the sides where the anchors are, okay? The cables are strung across and the bridge is constantly in tension and the deck that the cars and people go across is flexible, okay? So that's the suspension bridge. Right, so paradox. If we identify two truths that coexist, that are driven down, that don't change, okay, that are paradoxically different, but don't, we don't weaken the position of either one, okay? So both have to be true, both have to be driven down into foundation. Neither cancels out the other. So if the truths are the peers and the anchors, the believing in them drives them deeper into the ground, okay? We don't ignore one truth to make the other one true. We live in the tension of both truths. And those truths expand and deepen your relationship with God. Okay? So that is godly paradox. Right. That is the both andness of God. So let me just give you some quick examples of how comfortable God is with paradox. Jesus was both... Can I, uh, yeah. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Two truths driven down that don't preclude each other. Okay. We are called to be both servants and leaders, to serve and to lead. We are both unholy and made holy. Okay. God is both omnipresent and ever-present. I could go on. Jamie, this is serious. Just just so you know. Okay. Not necessarily that I have to preach, though, just, <laughs> just to add that. Okay. So the paradox that I'm focusing on today, it sounds more, it is more hopeful than it sounds, but the, the one I'm focusing on today is a paradox of lament. Okay. So here are the two truths. The two truths are, you will have trouble. The other truth is, I have overcome the world. Okay? The paradox of lament 
and the practice of lament is that we hold those two things to be true, that we are suffering, that the world is not how it should be. Romans says, creation groans and we groan with it. But it doesn't negate the truth that God is still on the throne, that God is faithful, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that Jesus came that you should have life and have life to abundance, okay? Those two things are true. Neither precludes the other. And because it's Mother's Day, I thought I'd give the mothers some glory. In Romans 8.22, creation, it says, creation grows with the groans of childbirth. Okay, so today's Mother's Day. So I thought about the paradox of childbirth. <laughs> Any of you who've had children, here's the paradox, right? We engage in both the pain and life in that moment. We are the closest we have ever felt to death. <laughs> yeah, all the women are like, yeah, it's so true. And if you asked me, I'd give you real detail as well. So we're <laughs> close to death and giving life. It's, it's a paradox, both are true. Let me tell you something else about childbirth. We are not silent. <laughs> We let you know that we are living that paradox, okay? And actually, research commissioned by the BMC says, when women interpret the pain as productive and purposeful, it is associated with positive cognitions and emotions, and they are more likely to feel they can cope. So when women lament and groan in childbirth, there is a purpose for their lament. There is a reason that they are not silent because they understand the pain to be productive, but they have to cry out. Yeah. Okay. But how many of us in suffering or who have suffered, who, who, who now hold pain, how many of us pray with a deep groaning? How many of us only pray in supplication with a humble request? How many of us withhold the true pain and the frustration and the anger at the trouble? As evangelical Christians, or very British stiff upper lippers, I don't know which it is, we choose positivity, we choose stoicism. Stoicism isn't faith. Stoicism is pretense. Lament is the honest cry of the heart. But we resist the honest cry of the heart in fear that we'll either be struck down because we're being too cheeky or that we'll bruise God with our honesty. And yet, if we do that, we risk holding back a part of ourselves from God. Last week, Claire gave a word about letting down your guard. I feel that we need to let down your guard. And I'll be honest with you, I was really trying not to preach this. I was really trying to find some of the nice paradoxes but this is what I kept being drawn back to. And when Claire said, gave that word last week about feeling we need to drop our guard, part of that guard is that unwillingness to truly suffer, to truly be honest with God. And, you know, like the psalmist says, when will you come? You know, how long, how long do I have to wait for you? So let's move on to lament. Let me just unpack it a bit. So I'm going to start with what lament is not, 
okay? So lament is not pessimism, okay? It's not pessimism. It's not constantly complaining and woe is me. Um, it's not a negative or turgid view of the world that likes other people to join in the misery. You know, oh, isn't it awful? Oh, aren't we terrible? Oh. It's not shaking your fist at the moon. I don't know how many of you have done that. It's not that. It's not personalization. This is all my fault. I deserve it. This suffering is because of who I am. It's not pervasiveness. So it's not saying this ruins everything it's done. And it's not permanence. It's not saying I will never be happy again. There's a brilliant writer called um, Jen Pollock Michelle. And she says, lament is, is a clear eyed appraisal of suffering with a commitment to find an audience with God. Okay? It's a really st stumbly, clumsy process of naming your sorrow and grief. Truth, I have sorrow, I have grief, I suffer. And holding them in parallel with what the truth is. And I know that God is faithful, is all hearing, does hear me, will rescue me. So the process of lament looks like this. It's a deep cry of an honest, grieving heart. It's, it's the nothing held back. It's the how long, Lord. It's an expression of, of, of suffering. And when I talk about suffering, I've, it's suffering that you have. So I've suffered, you know, anybody knows my story. <laughs> I've had suffering in my life. But it's also the suffering we borrow. So that's the suffering of others. You know, right now, the suffering of the world, Ukraine, the mothers and the children, the people that are refugees. It's not hiding your face from it. It's not avoidance. It's facing it on and saying, this is true, how long, Lord? It's actually a relinquishing of our right to answers because there are times in the Bible where, you know, People have lamented, and God hasn't given them an answer. You know, then will I fully know? Now I do not know. I don't fully understand it now. So when we lament, we, we put the question forward, and if no answer comes, we still continue with the process of lament. Lament also calls to account the promises of God. You know, I know that you are on the throne. I know that you, will, you are victorious. I know your word does not return void. I know these things to be true. And you call them to account. And it's an expectation that God will be and do all that he said he is and is capable. So what lament does is it voices complaint, it advances towards confidence, it names the petition, so this is the thing I need you to, I need you in this. And then... It marches toward praise. Lament never has the final word. If you read any lament in the word, it always ends with praise because of the two truths, because you hold both truths in parallel. So let's look at what lament does. So when you are lamenting, this is what lament does. Okay. It actually, weirdly, inspires faith because you're not only focusing on the one truth and you're focusing on both truths, it, it requires faith for you to stand before God and say, how long, Lord? When, Lord? When will you hear my cry? It requires faith. It requires a boldness of relationship that you boldly approach the throne 
with full assurance of faith. It actually sends us into the arms of God. So if you don't know, this always comes up quickly. I had breast cancer two years ago. And actually, when I lamented, you know, I remember stirring the pasta. <laughs> I don't know if Paul remembers this, but being on my own in the kitchen, thinking, how unfair is this? And nobody else, nobody else has got cancer, only me. And just stand, and then lamenting in prayer and saying, why me, why me of all people, you know, why? And, and then immediately, but I know that you have promised. I know when I first got diagnosed, he gave me a psalm, I will not, it will not be unto death. I know the truth that it will not be unto death. And it led me to praise. So by the end of that process, by the time everybody had the dinner on the table, I was, for I know, I know the promises you've given me, but it was the most cathartic, faith-filling, faith you know, it brought me closer to God, it brought me into the arms of God, um, rather than far away from it and suffering on my own. So it teaches you to engage in pain and not ignore or avoid it. One of the most difficult things that people find when they meet Christians is this leaning towards positivity and almost an avoidance of pain, if you engage with pain and you say, yes, there is suffering, yes, God is on the throne, but that doesn't stop the suffering. The suffering still happens. You are able to face other people's pain and do the thing that they need you to do. When they cry out, you can actually be the person who soothes them, who brings the balm for them. It acknowledges your pain and its validity and agency. I've covered some of these. Sorry, I hadn't written it down, but I've got it up there. So, yeah, this is the one that I wanted to look at. On the last one, there was um, a Christian researcher who did some research around using the process of lament for people who have experienced trauma. And so he was giving these people who weren't, weren't necessarily churched, but he gave them psalms as a, as a method to go through the process of lament. And in that, he found that it actually helped them process trauma because of that availability to name the pain, to name the trauma, acknowledge it, cry out about it, and then still hold this truth to be true. Okay, so let's go on to biblical examples of paradox. Okay, so the Psalms. Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So they're full of honest cries of a grieving heart. And like I said before, they rarely give lament the final word. So if we look at Psalm 6, Psalm 6 says, and it's this, it's, this is, you know, really defines that. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your, and then the truth, because of your unfailing love. I am worn out from my groaning. All night I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. And then the ark. The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be, haven't been yet, but will be overwhelmed. They will turn back and they will be put to shame. Two truths. I am groaning in pain. 
You have heard me. My enemies will be defeated. Mary and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. One truth. And then Martha says, but I know that even now God, even now God will give you whatever you ask for. Two truths. She knew both truths to be true. And even Jesus on the cross repeated Psalm 10, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Hebrews says, but for the joy set before him, he knew those two truths. He knew that the resurrection was coming. So we can lament, and that's, that's, we can learn that process, but we have to know that it goes somewhere. We have, what happens when you lament? What does God do when you lament? So there's a lesson. When, if we'll go back to Mary and Martha, it's, it's a beautiful illustration of the, the interaction in lament. So Jesus waited two days before he came to the aid of Lazarus. And it says um, in John 11, verse 5, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he had a good relationship with them. These were people that he would have called friends. And when Mary and Martha met him, they did with an accusation. So they've just lost their brother. And both of them, the first thing they said to him, they lamented towards him. The first thing they did, an accusation. They said, why didn't you come sooner? If you'd been here, you know, how many of us, even when you've been, even when you've, you know, God has intervened, you kind of go, why didn't you do that sooner? <laughs> why did I have to wait? Um, but earlier in the chapter, Jesus was assured that, you know, oh, he's only sleeping. So Jesus knew the truth. So he knew that there would be an intervention. He knew that Lazarus would be raised again. So surely, when Mary and Martha come to him with their lament, surely Jesus says, oh, buck up, don't worry, it's all right. Give me, give me a couple of hours, he'll be up he'll be having his dinner, don't worry about it. He doesn't. So he goes to them, they are lamenting to him, and John eleven thirty three to 35 says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus knew Lazarus would be raised. Jesus knew that there would be an intervention and that there would be resurrection. Yet, Jesus wept. And that's the point of lament, that when you lament, you lament to somebody, to a God, who um, doesn't only hear your lament, but he sings your lament with you. He weeps with you. He lends his ear to you. My phrase, he stoops. You don't have to hide your suffering from him or try to find reason for it or try to unpick it. You bring it to him and he weeps with you and he lends his ear to you and he brings comfort in the pain. So the final thing, how do we lament? First thing you do is you turn yourself to God. Whatever suffering you're in in the moment, whatever pain you might have, whatever experience you've had in the past that you still hold in that dark corner of yourself that you think, well, I can't bring this to him because it's, I'm too angry or I'm 
too hurt. Turn to God. If I give you an example, if you've ever had toddlers, have you ever had a toddler tantrum? Yeah? Which way do they tantrum? Towards me. They tantrum at me. You know, they kind of, they, they present their pain in a real, but it's towards me. It's very rare that a toddler, I mean, if they do go off, they're kind of stamping the floor, but every now and again, checking you're looking. Yeah. But, but lament is tantruming towards God. You know, lifting your hands to him, asking him for intervention, calling those things to account. The next thing you do, and the Psalms all have examples of this, so if you, if you want to bring your lament and you, don't, you feel worried that you're going to get stuck in the complaint, use a Psalm, you know, go through the process of the Psalm. But the next part is bring your complaint. What is the thing that you hold that you need him to hear? What is the pain? Bring it to him. The next thing you do is boldly remind God and yourself of the promises and call them to account. And if you can't see God now, remember a time when you could see him. Remember a time when he did intervene. Look back to that time and say, you did it before, you can do it again. I know that you have intervened in this place before. I've seen you do it here. I've seen you do it in the word. You are the same God as you always were. That is the truth I hold. Do it again. And the last thing you do, because lament sometimes is a repeated process, the last thing you do is that you choose the even so. And here's the even so. I'm just going to find it. (laughs) In Habakkuk chapter 3, it says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, we're over here, and no cattle in in the stalls, even so... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. Even so, I will praise. Because even so, I know that you are God. You are on the throne. You will intervene. You have a plan. This is part of something. And by choosing the even so, you march yourself towards praise you bring yourself into the presence of God. And so, to the invitation, and this might feel like a strange invitation, but I invite you this morning to lament. I invite you to, if you want to come to the front and have somebody pray with you, you can come and have somebody pray. If you want to go in that area, nobody will pray with you if you go over to that side. Um, We've got a ministry team who will pray in that corner, or where you are, I invite you to lament. I invite you to bring that thing that you have been holding back from God. Even the why did you? you know, how many of us have, why did, why did you? How come? Just that lament. And I, I invite you to bring that lament and hold it in parallel to the truth and drive both into the ground Live in the tension of that paradox and remind yourself of the character of God. I'm going to pray. Worship team, come back. I always forget to say that. (laughs)
Father, I thank you that you didn't stay in heaven and require anything that you weren't willing to put yourself through. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that he lamented and gave us an example of lament. Father, I pray now for everyone here, Lord. I just pray that you will, those things that we've hidden and those things that we've been too afraid to bring to you, those laments, Father, I pray that you will unpick them this morning, Lord. Reveal them to us so that we can bring, you to, bring them to you, Lord, and be free of them. And Father, I pray that you'll remind us of your greatness and of your goodness and of your faithfulness. Jesus, I just pray that you will come now as the great counsellor, that you will kneel next to each one of us and that you will hear our lament, that you will bring comfort and that you will remind us of who you are. I just pray that in your name now, Jesus.